Chapter Twenty Seven of Death World by Harry Harrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Death World by Harry Harrison. Chapter Twenty Seven. The fight was over. It had ended so quickly the fact hadn't really sunk in yet. Rhys rubbed his hand against the gleaming metal of the control console, letting the reality of touch convince him. The other men milled about, looking out through the viewscreens or soaking in the mechanical strangeness of the room. Jason was physically exhausted, but he couldn't let it show. He opened the pilot's med box and dug through it until he found the stimulants. Three of the little gold pills washed the fatigue from his body and he could think clearly again. "'Listen to me,' he shouted. "'The fight's not over yet. They'll try anything to take this ship back, and we have to be ready. I want one of the techs to go over these boards until he finds the lock controls. Make sure all the airlocks and ports are sealed. Send men to check them if necessary. Turn on all the screens to scan in every direction so no one can get near the ship. We'll need a guard in the engine room. My control could be cut off if they broke in there. And there had better be a room-by-room -room search of the ship in case someone else is locked in with us. The men had something to do now and felt relieved. Reese split them up into groups and set them to work. Jason stayed at the controls, his hand next to the pump switch. The battle wasn't over yet. There's a truck coming, Reese called, going slow. Should I blast it? the man at the gun controls asked. Hold your fire, Jason said, until we can see who it is. If it's the people I sent for, let them through. As the truck came on slowly, the gunner tracked it with his sights. There was a driver and three passengers. Jason waited until he was positive who they were. Those are the ones, he said. Stop them at the lock. Reese, make them come in one at a time. Take their guns as they enter, then strip them of all their equipment. There was no way of telling what could be a concealed weapon. Be specially careful of Bruco. He's the thin one with a face like an axe edge. Make sure you strip him clean. He's a specialist in weapons and survival. And bring the driver, too. We don't want him reporting back about the broken airlock or the state of our guns. Waiting was hard. His hand stayed next to the pump switch, even though he knew he could never use it, just as long as the others thought he would. There were stampings and muttered curses in the corridor. The prisoners were pushed in. Jason had one look at their deadly expressions and clenched fists before he called to Reese. Keep them against the wall and watch them. Bowman, keep your weapons up. He looked at the people who had once been his friends and who now swam in hatred for him. Meta, Kirk, Bruco. The driver was Scop, the man Kirk once had appointed to guard him. He looked ready to explode now that the roles had been reversed. Pay close attention, Jason said, because your lives depend upon it. Keep your backs to the wall and don't attempt to come any closer to me than you are now. If you do, you will be shot instantly. If we were alone, any one of you could undoubtedly reach me before I threw this switch. But we're not. You have Pyrran reflexes and muscles, but so do the bowmen. Don't gamble, because it won't be a gamble. It will be suicide. I'm telling you this for your own protection, so we can talk peacefully without one of you losing his temper and suddenly getting shot. There is no way out of this. You are going to be forced to listen to everything I say. You can't escape or kill me. The war is over. And we lost, and all because of you, you traitor, Meta snarled. Wrong on both counts, Jason said blandly. 
I'm not a traitor because I owe my allegiance to all men on this planet, both inside the perimeter and out. I never pretended differently. As to losing, why, you haven't lost anything. In fact, you've won. Won your war against this planet if you will only hear me out. He turned to Rhys, who was frowning in angry puzzlement. Of course your people have won also, Rhys. No more war with the city. You'll get medicine, off-planet contact, everything you want. Pardon me for being cynical, Rhys said, but you're promising the best of all possible worlds for everyone. That will be a little hard to deliver when our interests are opposed so. You strike through to the heart of the matter, Jason said. Thank you. This mess will be settled by seeing that everyone's interests are not opposed. Peace between the city and farms with an end to the useless war you've been fighting. Peace between mankind and the Pyrran life-forms, because that particular war is at the bottom of all your troubles." "'The man's mad,' Kirk said. "'Perhaps. You'll judge that after you hear me out. I'm going to tell you the history of this planet, because that is where both the trouble and the solution lie. When the settlers landed on Pyrrhus three hundred years ago, they missed the one important thing about this planet, the factor that makes it different from any other planet in the galaxy. They can't be blamed for the oversight. They had enough other things to worry about. The gravity was the only thing familiar to them. The rest of the environment was a shocking change from the climate-controlled industrial world they had left. Storms, volcanism, floods, earthquakes, it was enough to drive them insane, and I'm sure many of them did go mad. The animal and insect life was a constant annoyance, nothing at all like the few harmless and protected species they had known. I'm sure they never realized that the Pyrran life was telepathic as well. That again, Bruco snapped. True or not, it is of no importance. I was tempted to agree with your theory of psionic-controlled attack on us, but the deadly fiasco you staged proved that theory wrong. I agree, Jason answered. I was completely mistaken when I thought some outside agency directed the attack on the city with psionic control. It seemed a logical theory at the time, and the evidence pointed that way. The expedition to the island was a deadly fiasco, only don't forget that attack was the direct opposite of what I wanted to have done. If I had gone into the cave myself, none of the deaths would have been necessary. I think it would have been discovered that the plant creatures were nothing more than an advanced life-form with unusual psi ability. They simply resonated strongly to the psionic attack on the city. I had the idea backwards, thinking they instigated the battle. We'll never know the truth, though, because they're destroyed, but their deaths did prove one thing. It allows us to find the real culprits, the creatures who are leading, directing, and inspiring the war against the city. Who? Kirk breathed the question rather than spoke it. Why, you, of course, Jason told him. Not you alone, but all of your people in the city. Perhaps you don't like this war, however you are responsible for it and keep it going. Jason had to force back a smile as he looked at their dumbfounded expressions. He had to prove his point quickly before even his allies began to think him insane. Here is how it works. I said Pyrran life was telepathic, and I meant all life. Every single insect, plant, and animal. At one time in this planet's violent history, these psionic mutations proved to be survival types. They existed when other species died, and in the end I'm sure they cooperated in wiping out the last survivors of the non-psi strains. Cooperation is the key word here, because while they still competed against each other under normal conditions, they worked together against anything that threatened them as a whole. 
When a natural upheaval or a tidal wave threatened them, they fled from it in harmony. You can see a milder form of this same behavior on any planet that is subject to forest fires. But here, mutual survival was carried to an extreme because of the violent conditions. Perhaps some of the life forms even developed precognition like the human quake men. With this advance warning, the larger beasts fled. The smaller ones developed seeds or burrs or eggs that could be carried to safety by the wind or in the animal's fur, thus ensuring racial survival. I know this is true, because I watched it myself when we were escaping a quake. Admitted. All your points admitted, Bruco shouted. But what does it have to do with us? So all the animals run away together. What does that have to do with the war? They do more than run away together, Jason told him. They work together against any natural disaster that threatens them all. Some day I'm sure ecologists will go into raptures over the complex adjustments that occur here in the advent of blizzards, floods, fires, and other disasters. There is only one reaction we really care about now, though. That's the one directed towards the city people. Don't you realize yet? They treat you all as another natural disaster. We'll never know exactly how it came about, though there is a clue in that diary I found dating from the first days on this planet. It said that a forest fire seemed to have driven new species toward the settlers. Those weren't new beasts at all, just old ones with new attitudes. Can't you just imagine how those protected, over-civilized settlers acted when faced with a forest fire? They panicked, of course. If the settlers were in the path of the fire, the animals must have rushed right through their camp. Their reaction would undoubtedly have been to shoot the fleeing creatures down. When they did that, they classified themselves as a natural disaster. Disasters take any form. Bipeds with guns could easily be included in the category. The Pyran animals attacked, were shot, and the war began. The survivors kept attacking and informed all the life-forms what the fight was about. The radioactivity of this planet must cause plenty of mutations, and the favorable survival mutation was now one that was deadly to man. I'll hazard a guess that the psi function even instigates mutations. Some of the deadlier types are just too one-sided to have come about naturally in a brief three hundred years. The settlers, of course, fought back and kept their status as a natural disaster intact. Through the centuries they improved their killing methods. Not that it did the slightest good, as you know. You city people, their descendants, are heirs to this heritage of hatred. You fight and are slowly being defeated. How can you possibly win against the biologic reserves of a planet that can recreate itself each time to meet any new attack?" Silence followed Jason's words. Kirk and Meta stood white-faced as the impact of the disclosure sunk in. Bruco mumbled and checked points off on his fingers, searching for weak spots in the chain of reason. The fourth city pirate, Skop, ignored all these foolish words that he couldn't understand or want to understand and would have killed Jason in an instant if there had been the slightest chance of success. It was Reese who broke the silence. His quick mind had taken in the factors and sorted them out. There's one thing wrong, he said. What about us? We live on the surface of Pyrus without perimeters or guns. Why aren't we attacked as well? We're human, descended from the same people as the junkmen. You're not attacked, Jason told him, because you don't identify yourself as a natural disaster. Animals can live on the slopes of a dormant volcano, fighting and dying in natural competition, but they'll flee together when the volcano erupts. That eruption is what makes the mountain a natural disaster. 
In the case of human beings, it is their thoughts that identify them as life-form or disaster, mountain or volcano. In the city, everyone radiates suspicion and death. They enjoy killing, think about killing, and planning for killing. This is natural selection, too, you realize. These are the survival traits that work best in the city. Outside the city, men think differently. If they are threatened individually, they fight, as will any other creature. Under more general survival threats, they cooperate completely with the rules for universal survival that the city people break. How did it begin, this separation, I mean, between the two groups? Rhys asked. We'll probably never know, Jason said. I think your people must have originally been farmers or psionic sensitives who were not with the others during some natural disaster. They would, of course, act correctly by Pyrran standards and survive. This would cause a difference of opinion with the city people who saw killing as the answer. It's obvious, whatever the reason, that two separate communities were established early and soon separated except for the limited amount of barter that benefited both. I still can't believe it, Kirk mumbled. It makes a terrible kind of truth every step of the way, but I still find it hard to accept. There must be another explanation. Jason shook his head slowly. None. This is the only one that works. We've eliminated the other ones, remember? I can't blame you for finding it hard to believe, since it is in direct opposition to everything you've understood to be true in the past. It's like altering a natural law, as if I gave you proof that gravity didn't really exist, that it was a force altogether different from the immutable one we know, one you could get around when you understood how. You'd want more proof than words, probably want to see someone walking on air. Which isn't such a bad idea, he added, turning to Naxa. Do you hear any animals around the ship now? Not the ones you're used to, but the mutated, violent kind that live only to attack the city. Place is crawling with them, Naxa said, just looking for something to kill. Could you capture one, Jason asked, without getting yourself killed, I mean? Naxa snorted contempt as he turned to leave. Beasts not born yet that'll hurt me. They stood quietly, each one wrapped tightly around by his own thoughts, while they waited for Naxa to return. Jason had nothing more to say. He would do one more thing and try to convince them of the facts. After that, it would be up to each of them to reach a conclusion. The talker returned quickly with a stingwing tied by one leg to a length of leather. It flapped and shrieked as he carried it in. In the middle of the room, away from everybody, Jason told him, Can you get that beast to sit on something and not flap around? My hand good enough? he asked, flipping the creature up so it clung to the back of his gauntlet. That's how I caught it. Does anyone doubt that this is a real stingwing? Jason asked. I want to make sure you all believe there is no trickery here. The thing is real, Bruco said. I can smell the poison in the wing claws from here. He pointed to the dark marks on the leather where the liquid had dripped. If that eats through the gloves, he's a dead man. Then we agree. It's real, Jason said. Real and deadly. And the only test of the theory will be if you people from the city can approach it like Naxa here. They drew back automatically when he said it, because they knew that Stingwing was synonymous with death, past, present, and future. You don't change a natural law. Meta spoke for them all. We can't. This man lives in the jungle like an animal himself. Somehow he's learned to get near them, but you can't expect us to. Jason spoke quickly before the talker could react to the insult. Of course I expect you to. That's the whole idea. If you don't hate the beast and expect it to attack you, why, it won't. Think of it as a creature from a different planet, something harmless. 
I can't, she said. It's a stingwing. As they talked, Bruco stepped forward, his eyes fixed steadily on the creature perched on the glove. Jason signaled the bowmen to hold their fire. Bruco stopped at a safe distance and kept looking steadily at the stingwing. It rustled its leathery wings uneasily and hissed. A drop of poison formed at the tip of each great poison claw on its wings. The control room was filled with a deadly silence. Slowly he raised his hand, carefully putting it out over the animal. The hand dropped a little, rubbed the stingwing's head once, then fell back to his side. The animal did nothing except stir slightly under the touch. There was a concerted sigh as those who had been unknowingly holding their breath breathed again. "'How did you do it?' Meta asked in a hushed voice. "'Hm? What?' Bruco said, apparently snapping out of a daze. "'Oh, touching the thing? Simple, really. I just pretended it was one of the training aids I use, a realistic and harmless duplicate. I kept my mind on that single thought, and it worked.' He looked down at his hand, then back to the stingwing his voice quieter now, as if he spoke from a distance. It's not a training aid, you know. It's real, deadly. The off-worlder is right. He's right about everything he said. With Bruco's success as an example, Kirk came close to the animal. He walked stiffly, as if on the way to his execution, and runnels of sweat poured down his rigid face. But he believed, and kept his thoughts directed away from the stingwing, and he could touch it unharmed. Meta tried, but couldn't fight down the horror it raised when she came close. I am trying, she said, and I do believe you now, but I just can't do it. Scop screamed when they all looked at him, shouted it was all a trick, and had to be clubbed unconscious when he attacked the bowman. Understanding had come to Pyrrhus. End of Chapter 27 of Death World by Harry Harrison 